Hello, listeners, and welcome to another episode of Climate Ready. I'm Alex Maroner, joined as always by Ingrid Timbo. Today we have another fascinating episode lined up with three guests joining us to talk about the ways public utilities are using green infrastructure and innovative finance to provide their users with water, wastewater, and power services while addressing and adapting to a changing climate. Hello, everyone. Today's guests all come from the United States State of California, representing the San Francisco Public Utilities Commission. We'll hear some of the reasons that we continue to find San Francisco on the forefront of climate and environmental issues and learn why climate bonds in particular are becoming a prominent tool in achieving adaptation, mitigation, and resilience goals in cities and elsewhere around the world. Following the interview, stick around for another Climate of Hope segment in partnership with the World Youth Parliament for Water. Karan Gajari shares a success story of the commendable and replicable steps being taken to address climate mitigation and adaptation in his native India. And don't forget to subscribe and follow us on Twitter using at ClimateReadyPod. Enjoy! Climate Ready is a product of Agua, the Alliance for Global Water Adaptation, an international members-based NGO working across technical and policy programs to mainstream resilient water resources management, focusing on the connections between water resources and climate adaptation and mitigation. The Climate Ready podcast is made possible with support from Deutsche Gesellschaft für Internationale Zusammenarbeit, or GIZ, on behalf of the German Federal Ministry for Economic Cooperation and Development, BMZ. For more information on GIZ, visit www.giz.de. Climate Ready would also like to acknowledge the continued support of the water global practice of the World Bank. For more information on the World Bank's activities around water, visit worldbank.org water. Today on Climate Ready, we have the pleasure of being joined by not one, but three wonderful guests to discuss the evolving and expanding world of climate finance in the role of nature-based or green infrastructure for the provision of water services. Our guests come from the San Francisco Public Utilities Commission in the U.S. state of California. Mike Brown is the Environmental Finance Manager. Sarah Minnick is Utility Planning Manager. And last but not least, we have Business Services Manager, Carrie Ving. Welcome to the show, everyone. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Thanks. All right, so we're going to be spending some time in this conversation talking about the work that you guys are all doing at the San Francisco Public Utilities Commission. Just to give our listeners a bit of context, we just thought it would be good to give a quick background about what is the mandate of SFPUC and what types of services do you provide? Thanks, Ingrid. This is Mike. Uh, I'll just provide a brief overview. The SFPUC is a department of the city of San Francisco, and we provide water, wastewater, and power services. So we're a publicly owned utility, and we serve uh, 2.7 million people for our water services, both in San Francisco and in surrounding counties. And our water primarily comes from the Hetch Hetchy Reservoir and flows by gravity to the peninsula. It flows through three hydroelectric generation facilities and generates power, and that provides the power for our municipal departments here in San Francisco. Our wastewater department serves in-city customers, about 900,000 people. And then our power enterprise serves uh, municipal departments with the power I mentioned that's generated hydroelectrically. And right now we're serving about 80% overall of the city with 
power that is approximately 90% renewable. Wow, that's great. Yeah. On the podcast, we always have an interest in how climate change is impacting or even inspiring people's work. San Francisco has often been at the forefront of many political, social, and environmental movements over the years. At least since, I believe, 2006 or so, the city has been explicitly working to address climate change. Why is climate change a concern for the city, and what has given the topic staying power even through numerous political eras? This is Carrie. So San Francisco's values have been rooted in social justice and environmental stewardship for decades, and our efforts around a changing climate really stem from paying attention and considering our carbon footprint and just overall environmental footprint for decades. Now we're looking at a changing climate. We are not only paying attention to lowering our emissions and working to approach a net zero emissions culture in this city, but we're, we're actively understanding how carbon sequestration is an important component of that effort, meaning that you can only reduce the amount of emissions to a point. At some point, municipalities and civilizations need to put carbon back into the ground where it came from and take it out of the air. This is Sarah. Just to build on what Carrie was saying, I think another reason that these kinds of issues have staying power in San Francisco is that we have just really active, engaged, and educated constituents who help, you know, hold all of our institutions accountable for being progressive and taking it to the next level. I think people show up in San Francisco and they pay attention to what's going on politically and with municipal services, et cetera. And so a lot of the different things that we do are backed by an active public, which is incredibly helpful. And I think San Francisco also feels this sense of responsibility that there's sort of this saying that so goes San Francisco, so goes the state of California, and so goes California, so goes the country. And so people want to lead here and see those policies be amplified if possible, piloting different things at the local level and then seeing it potentially go statewide. So that's an exciting reason to innovate here. I'd like to just add to that, too. San Francisco is a peninsula, so we're we're surrounded on three sides by water. And we've been experiencing the effects of sea level rise for, I think, 10 or more years. So we've experienced firsthand effects of sea level rise already. We're very susceptible to flooding in San Francisco. So with increased storm intensity resulting from climate change, we're also feeling those effects. And then on the water supply side, during droughts, which have been getting you know, kind of more frequent and severe in California, we've also been experiencing those negative effects. So I think San Francisco is just very sensitive to climate change as well. Based on all of that, we can see that San Francisco is really a leader in terms of efforts to address climate change. Now, I thought maybe we could shift a bit to discuss a related field in which SFPUC is really a pioneer, and that is climate finance, and specifically the use of green or climate bonds. What has drawn you towards the use of climate bonds? When I think about the benefits of green bonds, I think there are three main things. The first is the opportunity to attract new investors, and we've experienced that. So now when we sell our green bonds, there's investors that are showing up on our deals that were not there previously. That's very exciting to us, and I think that may ultimately lead to uh, to a lower cost of borrowing. The second important thing is our rating agencies. Rating agencies are paying attention to the work issuers are doing on climate and addressing their climate risk. And in 2018, when we sold our wastewater bonds, Moody cited as a credit positive our work on climate. So I think 
to the extent that our work on climate and climate bonds, uh, so green bonds are aligned, it's a credit positive and may ultimately lead to a credit rating upgrade, which would also be uh, very important and also result in a tangible pricing benefit. And finally, I think another important benefit is on communications. Now, when we issue our green bonds, we are communicating to various stakeholders, our, our investors and also our community activists, that the bonds we're financing are also meeting climate objectives to be climate resilient. And I think that's a really interesting opportunity for green bond issuers to communicate all the benefits that are associated with their projects and their investments. And I think in places where there's a lot of skepticism about local government, about government in general, people will be heartened to see all of the work that local government is providing, all the benefits that are being provided by these projects. Great. So those are some of the general benefits of using green or climate bonds. But the specifics of what SFPUC has been doing is really impressive. SFPUC, correct me if I'm wrong, was the first group in the world to issue a climate certified water bond in May of 2016. And this means that the bond was officially certified under the water infrastructure criteria of the climate bond standards and certification scheme. This is a set of approvals for the various projects adaptation and mitigation benefits coming from an organization called Climate Bonds Initiative or CBI. So can you tell us a little bit about the types of projects that these certified bonds have supported? So to date, we've issued over 1.4 billion of green bonds certified under CBI. We've issued green bonds for our power enterprise, for renewable energy infrastructure, and for our water enterprise, for this water system improvement program, which is to provide seismic reliability, but also resilience of all kinds to our water system. So increasing storage, increasing reliability of our uh, delivery system, and improving our treatment plants. And then on our wastewater side, we've issued green bonds as well for the sewer system improvement program, which is this new capital improvement program. And for that program, there's both projects that provide adaptation benefits, but also uh, mitigation benefits. And I'll let Sarah and and Carrie speak about those. This is Sarah. I think that one of the climate links for the green infrastructure projects is that we kind of imagine them as a buffer that goes over our collection system. San Francisco is a combined sewer system, so everything that we do is really a hybrid between green and gray. We're not looking to go with one over the other. We're looking to find the best benefit by combining both of them. With green infrastructure, when you build that into the environment, as storms become less predictable or more intense, the green infrastructure being on the surface can help maintain capacity in our gray infrastructure so that the overall system is performing better. So it's kind of climate buffering in that way. But the other piece is just the benefits that we're able to deliver to our ratepayers. We're charged with managing stormwater, obviously, but when we build green infrastructure, we can do so many other things at the same time, like traffic safety, pedestrian and bike safety. We're now integrating stormwater into the water supply portfolio through green infrastructure and rainwater harvesting. So we're really trying to share with the public the fact that we're delivering this core business value, which is stormwater management, but that at the same time, we're able to provide all of these ancillary benefits for that same cost. Yeah, I mean, I think that's really important to point out. I'm wondering, have you seen any actual quantifiable results of these hybrid green and gray projects as being more beneficial to either the bottom line in terms of the economics of them, but also just overall for the resilience of the system? 
Yeah, well, we do monitor a subset of them so that we can report out to our management and board of supervisors and the public, you know, what are these pieces of infrastructure doing? We monitor them so that we can understand how much they're shaving peak flows in the collection system and how much water they're keeping out of the sewer entirely. So a lot of the systems, especially if they're infiltration-based, are, are not only managing stormwater, but they're just completely removing it from the system. So this water would have otherwise gone in and it would have needed to be conveyed and treated, et cetera. Measuring the end of pipe benefits of that is really difficult until you get to critical mass. Because it's not like if you build one green infrastructure project, that means that one fewer person has to go to work at our sewage treatment plant. You know, that's yeah. not really how, how it works. So in terms of savings, that's not really the lens that we're looking at it through. We're looking at it through the provision of multiple benefits. So it's more for the money that you're spending. That is the best way to look at it in San Francisco. In some other places, especially in separate sewer areas, there are cases where folks can build green infrastructure instead of gray infrastructure at a lower cost. That's not the case here in San Francisco where we're an old city that's all the way built out and we already have this combined sewer system. So here our task is to really weave green infrastructure into an already existing, extremely dense and complex infrastructure that's already there. You talked earlier about the engagement with stakeholders about some of these types of projects, maybe even specifically some of the green infrastructure ones. Have they been well received by the public? Is it kind of intuitive that we're building Project X then will receive benefits Y and Z from the green infrastructure? The public has been very enthusiastic. I mean, I think in a, in a very dense urban environment like San Francisco, people are really excited about greening. The big challenge that the public asks about is less about the project itself. They're largely excited to have the project, but they want to know about maintenance. Who's going to take care of this? How are we going to keep it sustainable into the future? Well, Carrie, Mike spoke earlier about some of the benefits and incentives for institutions when it comes to financing through climate bonds. Could you expand a little bit on the benefits of this financial model in terms of the public perspective? Cities are going to be spending the money anyway to rebuild their infrastructure. Every city with aging infrastructure. And if we're already spending the money, the intention with green bonds is in the approach. What other benefits, to Sarah's earlier point, can you be providing the same ratepayers in this investment? Is there a way to beautify their neighborhoods, increase their property values, make their neighborhoods safer and walkable? And so the concept of going after and competing for a unique bonding structure is a way to get cities to really think more holistically about their constituents and begin to stack benefit upon benefit for the same dollar. In general, climate finance is really such a rabbit hole of a topic because there's so many categories of stakeholders involved. I'm glad that today we're getting to learn more about the role of utilities, especially a public utility in all of this. But maybe taking a step back, there are a lot of players, as you well know. Bond issuers, taxpayers, mayors and local governments, bond certifiers, credit rating agencies, and the actual bondholders, the people who are investing in climate bonds. Am I missing any other important groups here? I think one of the biggest 
strategies that we've had on sort of the watershed planning side is to engage the design and, and development community. And I think utilities all need to be doing that because the way that we make cities more resilient over time is to change the building stock over time. So San Francisco has been having this huge building boom and every time a, a retrofit happens or every time a new development happens, we need to pose the question, what do we want that to look like from a water power sewer perspective, from a housing perspective, et cetera. And so we've really tried to work programmatically to leverage the development cycle and not just have all of our strategies be capital. So our stormwater management ordinance, which we passed in about 2010, has leveraged over $10 billion of vertical development, not even counting our redevelopment areas like Hunter's Point or Candlestick Point. And when I say leveraged, I mean that that's what's being spent on that new development. And what we're doing is inserting green infrastructure requirements into that process so that those developers are building and maintaining that in perpetuity. That's helping our system. That's all done just by understanding code and how that impacts city form down the road and working with our colleagues in city planning and Department of Building Inspection to do that. So I think the design and development community is a really important partner in increasing resilience over time. You brought up a great point earlier, too, that if you're going to be doing something like this anyway, you know, more buildings, more development, then might as well do it the best way possible, whether that means low impact, environmentally friendly, minimizing climate risk, et cetera. That's right. And there's also the sort of business case that is becoming more clear as we get more data. You know, we can talk about damages avoided in terms of flooding as we think about flood resilient building codes, et cetera. I think in the past, as people are sort of moving towards more sustainability, it was really a policy initiative that maybe didn't have a ton of, of robust data behind it because we didn't have all that data that we now know about flood damage at, you know, 20 years ago. But now folks are better able to say, you know, we're going to have more frequent storms. They're going to be more intense. Here the, here's the potential cost of that to the city, both from a private property perspective and even like missed days of work because of transit not working, et cetera, all those different metrics. Yeah, it's not just kind of making the social good argument. You're still looking at return on investment, and that's where it makes sense. Well, we've spoken at length about the current work being done in San Francisco through the SFPUC to grapple with climate change. I thought we could pivot towards an even more forward-looking perspective now. So much of our work around climate adaptation is about long-term planning and setting the table for what we hope to be thriving communities decades into the future. As we wrap up, I'd love to hear each of your thoughts on the long-term outlook for achieving climate-resilient cities. I'll take a crack first at that one. Um, it's a big question, so you, big can, question. you can take a second. It's totally fine. Yeah, I mean, I do think that it's really in the integration of the different agencies that the ultimate answers and success in being resilient in the face of climate change are. And so to the extent that we're, you know, not only sort of striving for excellence in our own industry, in our own field, but connecting the dots with colleagues across the city on their work so that we're all amplifying each other's efforts, that's what we need to be doing. If we're all excellent, but we're all alone, that's not going to be, it's not going to be enough. It has to be together because we have such complex problems to solve. You know, 
cities are inherently complicated and are made up of all these different parts that are all together. So yeah. we have to think about housing and infrastructure and transit all together if we're going to build climate resilient cities. I think the efforts that are integrative are really important for that. Just to add on to what Sarah's saying, I would like to see uh, an integrated climate-informed capital planning policy so it would be citywide and so that all of the capital projects that we finance are screened for climate and also to meet whatever climate target the city has made. One goal we have is to be carbon neutral by 2050. So in order to get there, we need to be building infrastructure today that can meet those goals. And if you think about the infrastructure that's being built today, we're going to be living with those emissions for the next 30, 40, 50 years because infrastructure Mm -hmm. lasts that long. So we we need to start that now. I would continue to build on this theme of municipal responsibility. In the era of the Clean Water Act, most urban infrastructure across the country was funded by the federal government. Um, a lot of our treatment plants, water and wastewater, you know, 80%, 90% came from federal dollars. Yep. In 2020, moving forward, it's flipped now. It's really the majority of the financing for major capital projects is having to come from the cities. And this is uncharted territory, but we're left to figure out how to fund these large projects that keep our city safe and healthy and prepare for future either catastrophes or opportunities. And we're also at the municipal level more and more faced with having to make these very large decisions around climate change lacking national leadership. Yes. And so the factors that go into the decisions that we make around capital planning are very different from what they were a generation ago. Moving forward, when we talk about long-term planning, we're going to have to consider these factors in not just planning, again, for the next bridge or in the next school, but will the city be vibrant and sustainable through the next several decades, which no generation has ever had to worry about. You're definitely right in terms of this trend to view cities as the real canvas or mechanism for implementing climate solutions. But really, I'm encouraged by what I've heard today. I think people will continue to look to California for positive examples as both a pioneer and a benchmark in terms of a push toward resilient cities. And, of course, the innovative climate finance work, too. Yeah, you're our our national lab for all of this. So (laughs) (laughs) good to check in and see how things are going. (laughs) Well, thanks again to all three of you for joining us today. Yeah. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you so much. This was super interesting. Thank you, guys. After several years of negotiations, we're finally entering a time where a number of our global climate agreements and commitments are turning into tangible actions. Even though we talk about national ambitions and global frameworks, cities are actually often the scale at which we implement our adaptation and mitigation plans. So towards that end, Sarah mentioned the complexity of cities in terms of stakeholders and management. And I was really encouraged to hear that the SFPUC sees climate resilience really as a multidisciplinary process and one that's ongoing and adapting over time. And that really goes back to the idea that water is a connector rather than a sector. In the interview, we talked a lot about capital planning and how we can finance these projects. 
but it's just as important to talk about what we're financing and who is involved in the process, including citizen input, engineers, designers, credit agencies, the list goes on and on. As cities increasingly take on the mantle of climate leadership, at least in the U.S., we continue to see those in California yet again leading by example. Now before we close, we're featuring another Climate of Hope story. We are grateful to hear from Karan Gajari, a civil engineer pursuing a master's degree in environmental engineering through an Erasmus Mundus program. He shares the success story of a small village taking big steps to adapt to and mitigate climate change in his native India. The story that I would like to share is of my native village name, Ralegan Sindhi, which is approximately 225 kilometers away from Mumbai, the financial capital of India. Geographically, the village is located in the drought-prone and rain-shadow region of the Western Ghats in the Ahmednagar district of the state of Maharashtra, a world-acclaimed social crusader, famously known as Anna Hazare, has started to build embankment, check dams, and percolation tanks and employing different types of irrigation techniques with an aim to sustainably use water resources and recharge the groundwater through voluntary labor contribution from the villagers back in 1970s. The village has been described as an example of model village for the environmental conservation and sustainable development by international organizations such as the World Bank. The sustainable model of Raleigan Sindhi focuses on tackling both mitigation as well as adaptation parameters of climate change. Presently, the entire village is lighted by wind and solar power street lights. Due to the integrated watershed development program that has been implemented, the village has increased its agriculture productivity despite seeing a decrease in the level of precipitation over the past decades. With the sustainable water conservation program employed, the village has access to water around the year as well as a grain and milk bank at the village level. This has transformed the village from a highly degraded village ecosystem in a semi-arid region with absolute poverty to one of the richest in terms of per capita income in the country and top-ranking village in terms of human development index in the South Asia. The biggest takeaway from the sustainable model of Raleigan Sindhi is that community-led development is capable of bringing drastic economic prosperity, behavioral changes, and increased standard of living, and regenerating the natural environment with proper and able leadership. It also provides us with an example that it is possible to rebuild natural capital in partnership with local economy and it can coexist as we face climate change. This model of community-led adaptation is being scaled up throughout India as many villages are looking forward to replicate what has been done in my native village. That will do it for this episode of Climate Ready. Thanks again to all of our interview guests from the San Francisco Public Utilities Commission, Mike Brown, Sarah Minnick, and Carrie Ving, and a big thanks to Karan Gajari for his Climate of Hope. Until next time, everyone.
Climate Ready Podcast is produced by John Matthews of the Alliance for Global Water Adaptation. It is directed and edited by Alex Maroner and Ingrid Timbo.